You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. The Rebirth of Vinyl Records, Side 2. Everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger. And for this, our last interview podcast of 2021, we're heading back home to the Memphis Listening Lab for another conversation in front of a live audience with producer, engineer, and vinyl cutter Jeff Powell. Once again, you may notice a few graceful edits here. We spun several records throughout the course of the night, and I had to take the music bits out for copyright reasons. It's also worth mentioning that one of the voices from the crowd that you'll hear repeatedly is that of Wilco's Pat Sansone, a very nice gentleman I hope to have on the podcast on his own in the future. So here we go. Let's get into it. This is me and Jeff Powell live at the Memphis Listening Lab. So that was the Vince Guaraldi Trio uh, song Skating, which is my personal favorite off that record. And... um, uh, like we were just talking, that's the second time I've cut this album. It's been done seven times, I think, in different versions. So you can kind of tell just by the sound of it, that's an older, significantly older recording. So it's uh, uh, it's kind of beautiful in its own way. I uh, When I started to mess with it and figure out how to try to figure out how best to cut it, uh, I compared it to old, older copies of it. And... Um, they were different. Almost all of them were a little bit different. And there were some real phase issues, and and phase is extremely important when I'm cutting vinyl. Um, Things are out of phase. What happens in the most simple terms, the grooves start to look like an hourglass. So they do this. And if it's too much out of phase, they're also going up and down. So in those very skinny parts, it's going, the needle's going up a hill and dale. And that's what can cause the needle to pop out of the groove. So I started messing around with folding it in a little bit just the panning and then I got to listen to some of the favorite versions of the old records I was like some of these are practically in mono and so I called the label to see if uh, it was cool if I just took liberty with it and folded it down to mono or close to mono where I saw fit and they were like go for it you know just do it so um, it was kind of a revelation And, and as I started to fold it in it really kind of started popping out and came to life so you know, there's been different phases. Obviously, when stereo was a new thing, people were panning drums and bass to one side. The Beatles famously did that a lot, and you know, it's really hard to it's really hard to cut. Um, it's, it almost seems sometimes like, what's the hardest thing we can make the cutter do? You know, like, if you all watched the Beatles documentary this week, last weekend, you know, it's almost like. Some of the it was it was magical, but some of the disregard that they have for I don't know we're just making the music. You figure out how to mix it, put it out there. It's it's mono when they were listening to it in mono most of the part, even though they had like four speakers across the. Like Pat, do you remember those speakers? Those exact speakers at Kingsway? Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it was those, right? Yeah. We saw in the yeah, room. it was those kind and. Um, they always said that Lanois had the, those were the actual speakers that Revolver was mixed on. So whenever you did a, whenever you did a record there, you had to go out and buy Revolver and <laughs> listen to it on the speakers. They didn't, it really didn't sound that great 
to me. Yeah, it's very boxy and mid-rangey, but they got the they got the job done. Whatever they did. I've heard that the Beatles were less involved with those stereo mixes, like that sometimes they weren't even in the room, but like it was just like the assistants would do those or something. Yeah, because it was it was a, a new thing. It's kind of like what's going on with Atmos right now, in a way. Um, a friend of mine from here called me last week and said, hey pal, I bought an Atmos system. And I was like, great, what do you know about it? I go, nothing. Where are you going to put it? And so he's he's bought the system. We're like, did you get a deal on it, or somebody buy a used one or something? And he said, no, I bought it all new. And I ran into him at FedEx yesterday when I was shipping some lacquers off, and he was sending it back because it was not working or something like that. But Atmos is I don't know. Does anybody know the exact specs? It's a number. How many speakers are in a proper Atmos system? Eleven. Eleven. Yeah. So. Um, you can imagine it's above you, behind you, around you, and all that. So people that are doing that right now, I think, are, there's no real rules, per se, and they're just kind of, they got the joystick and like, let's make that come out over here. And I think it was largely the same when it was stereo. People are like, well, wow, that sounds really weird and cool to put the drums over here and the bass over here. Um, who cares how hard it is to cut it onto a vinyl record, you know? And with digital, you didn't have to really worry at all about that. That's actually one thing I wanted to ask you about. I got a question submitted via Facebook about the different processes when you have when you're mastering from a digital source versus an analog source. Um, well, it usually takes two of us when I when I'm doing from analog for one. Um, Lucas, who works with me a lot of times, I'll have him there. If nothing else, you need four hands. You know, um, when the when the cutter head drops and Somebody's got to hit the play button. That may be behind me. I have him. This particular one I did today was uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival's Chronicles, and uh, you know, there was no leader tape in between. A lot of times you can just look over your shoulder, and there's the leader. So you hit make the space that that makes the space on the record between the songs. Yeah. But there was none of that because he didn't want. You can hear that. You know, you can hear on the old tapes. A lot of times it's paper leader. Uh, plastic leader is usually quieter. But he didn't want any of that. He wanted the, the hiss basically to be continuous. So you couldn't see the little splice tape go by. So basically it was, I had gone through, rehearsed the, you know, it's like a performance almost. You rehearse it once, make notes, but the counter on the tape machine isn't accurate. It can be, it can drift a second or two. So it's like Lucas going, hit it, you know, and, and I, I hit the, the echo button which spreads the grooves to make the space. So it's exciting when you when you do it. It's it's a thing. You do know? you sometimes get it wrong? I was in a way, small way, yeah. Um, in in a way I was kinda hoping I might goof one up today and I was gonna bring the bring the lacquer. I don't even they could probably play a fourteen inch on this one. But I was gonna bring something if I goofed it up, so I was like, I was doing that to get the take the pressure off. It doesn't matter if I screw it up, I'll play it at the listening thing tonight, so. How is the sound quality of the finished product different when the source is digital or analog? Or is there a difference? There is, number one thing is tape hiss. Um, I always, when I, I used to mix to tape all the time as my, in my engineering days, and, and uh, one of the things that Brad Blackwood did a lot of my mastering. He used to make fun of me because I would always have him keep on file tape hiss. Because I hated the way mastering engineers made it go completely to digital black, and then when they bring it back, 
that would make me hear the hiss. If it's just going the whole time, your ear isn't drawn to it. So I would actually have him insert insert hiss in between and blend it in. He thought I was crazy, but it, it is less distracting that way. But uh, So there's that. And, um, you know, actually, I'm going through a thing with a client right now that when I got the Masters in digitally, I called the label and said, this is uncuttable. It was too loud. It was too bright. The vocals sounded like they had an oral exciter on them and I very rarely do that but the S's were just so extreme and it was it was popping my circuit breaker there's a the mechanism on the lathe that that will actually turn it off before it damages the cutter head um, and so uh, I just I can't I can't do it like this so they tracked down the mastering engineer and he goes well I don't do anything different for vinyl usually the mastering engineer will do a pre-master for vinyl let me back up a step and so they will do things to it to treat it before I get my hands on it um, if that step is skipped or not done well um, it causes all kinds of problems but so this guy said I mastered it digitally and the producer took that and added 3 dB of 10k across all the mixes on in addition to that he goes so I can take that off if you want so he took that off and I tried to just make the best of things and then the test pressings this has been four months ago they came back yesterday and I got a call and they said they're not happy because it sounds dull compared to the digital they're comparing the digital master with what I cut and it's not it's not the same at all nor will it ever be you know and they said they were going through all the things like it's not as loud um, it's not as stereo wide and that's true vinyl just isn't you know as far as those kind of specs um, it's it's a whole different thing so to listen when you get your test pressings back and compare it to the digital uh, your digital source is a mistake I think the question not to discount what the answer you just gave but the question was more about uh, there's a certain sect of record collectors that are only looking for records that were sourced from analog material. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to that? Yeah, yeah, because if it never uh, gets turned into digital files in the first place, there's no conversion going on. So the purest form of that, and we've done a little bit of this so far, is is recording on the floor and running two mic cables down the hallway directly into my lathe so it doesn't touch a tape machine, it doesn't touch a computer. You should hear that. I mean, you know, there's famous recordings of that, the direct to lathe uh, cuts. But yeah, when it doesn't touch digital at all, it's a pretty noticeable difference. It, it again, it makes you feel it makes you feel different. So it's not just your ears. It's not just the way it sounds. But there's an overall feeling when it hasn't been converted. No matter how good of converters you have or whatever, there's definitely good ones and bad ones and in between and all that. But um, so that's a big part of it. If you if you're using cheap converters or something, and you give me that to cut to vinyl, um, it's it's really it can only be as good as its source. But yeah, the the ones the guys who are really sticklers about this is AAA, it's never been turned into digital. There's definitely something to that. But they can also be fooled a lot of times too. I've found. You know. I think my friend's gonna feel validated now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anybody have a question? Mark, shoot. Some of the older, um, like things that were recorded without maybe, um, so long albums you see get reissued, and the way to kind of make up for some of the desire for loudness 
um, or fidelity is to, is to cut it at 45 uh, and make it a double LP. I, it seems like a lot of records that I that I used to love, I see get reissued, and they, they release it on 180 gram vinyl with uh, on 45. Is that to address some of the sonic limitations? Yeah, but that's a that's a great question because I've gotten myself in trouble with that before too. Saying, so let's say say someone sends their masters in and it's two sides and it's like, this is, we're we're we, I can cut it, but it's you know it's at the cost of volume and low mm -hmm. end. I, I'm gonna have to turn it down. I'm gonna have to roll off more low end to get it to fit. Why don't we cut it at four sides, at 45? And when I've done that, when you actually do the math. <laughs> So if 20 minutes a side is a good scale for a two-sider, probably 14 minutes or less is good f measure for 45 RPMs. Well, I've, I encouraged them to go 45 RPMs, and then I got into a situation where I was like back in the same place. Now I've got to turn it down and roll off low end because the medium can't hold it physically can't hold that much so I'm always careful with recommending that now uh, some people hate that they don't like to get up out of their chairs much um, I don't know how many of you heard about the Taylor Swift fiasco in the last mm -hmm. three weeks um, she released her new double album on 45 and there's a hilarious thread going around <laughs> on the internet all these people are turning their records back in saying I don't know what happened but some dude is singing all these songs I don't even hear Taylor. And they're all slow. Yeah, and they're all really <laughs> slow and draggy, and they're playing. They don't know to play it at, at 45 RPM. So that's pretty extreme there, but um, you know. But no, that's a good question. We 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 did a it might be might have been something that I worked on with you, but it was I can't remember which record it was, but um, where it was kind of like right on that line, and so we were. Me and the guys in the band were kind of back and forth between do we should we should we do this on 45, which will probably be much. It's going to sound amazing, but do we want to interrupt the record and make people have to get up, you know? And, and so we put it to social media, you know. Our manager said, "Well, why don't you? This will be a great opportunity for a Facebook or you know oh, yeah. social media uh, survey." And it was exactly 50-50. Really? There was no help at all. It was like, That's it, awesome. It was like 50% of the people were like, you know, I don't want to get up and, you know, and have to have to flip it over every three songs. And the other half were like, go for the quality, go for the fidelity. So, you know, and like there's some famous Radiohead records where they only cut like two songs. They don't even want to use the inner grooves of the discs. So they'll not only do 45, but they'll just have two fairly short songs, reasonably short, four minutes or under, and you look at it. I have I have some clients, and these are mainly punk rock clients. They don't like Dead Wax at all. Like, they're like, if they have a short side, it's a two minute song, and I can let it rip, but it doesn't eat up the whole disc. They're like, can you waste waste some space? And, and you know, because I don't want my, I don't know if the client will feel like they got their money's worth. <laughs> because there's all this blank space that could have been used. Um, another thing I'm finding that's becoming a pretty popular option is three sides and keeping it at 33 and just spreading it out a little more and they might do like an etching on the on the blank side and some are just doing it three sides and no etching. I don't even know what the etching thing costs. Has anybody gone down that road as a, as a consumer? Um, as a customer I mean. Um, so 
that's becoming more and more popular, but people are slowly understanding that. And I, I do get the question a lot like, well, um, you know, Bitches Brew was 27 minutes long on both sides. I mean, why can't you, why can't you fit a 25-minute side? And then it has to do with everything. It has to do with the instrumentation, how it was recorded, um, everything about it. So in, in general, you know, some, sometimes I get asked about <laughs> older records. Why are they louder than the records now? And why were they able to cut longer records back then? And, you know, I can say I can cut it, but it's just not going to sound... And, and they had different cutter heads and different things that weren't as sensitive as what we use now. I mean, used to be able to just kind of blow through it and it didn't matter if it was distorted. It needed to be loud because either A, they wanted it louder on the radio than everybody else's or... On the jukebox. On the jukebox. It's, it's always been the loudness thing and now we've come, we came all the way through that in digital land too and people seem to understand that it's not just about how loud it is because it runs the music. A lot of times. So, um, I have a, I actually have a new record of my own in the queue right now. Uh -huh. And uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I wrote an email to the company that's doing my record and uh, asked them if it would be foolish of me to maybe set a release date for March. And this, <laughs> this is the email I got back. Um, hey, JD, let me shoot you straight. I cannot urge or suggest to people with vinyl records to wait until it is physically in hand before making plans strongly enough. This last year I have watched bands get absolutely screwed over missed deadlines they promised or being forced to refund pre-orders or miss gigantic release parties at large venues with vinyl in hand. It has been painful to watch these things happen to bands which I get a front row seat to because I am the one they call and tell me how bad they are screwed and how it is supposedly my fault. The global capacity for known lacquer, plating, and pressing companies is just over 140 million individual vinyl records a year. Like, you can only fit so many clowns into the car. <laughs> I'm going to skip a little bit. And what is happening with the global queue now of currently over 400 million orders. Wow. Wow. Uh, waiting to be pressed. We are at a that's it point and the queue still continues to grow. Wow. And then he sends me this really depressing meme picture showing me that I had just got my record in right before the shitstorm is about to take place. <laughs> so... Do you think that the person at this company that I guess I won't name is being melodramatic? Or are things really as dire as he is saying? They're bad. Um, there, I read an article, I, well you and I shared an article Indeed. this week. And that guy I thought was being, he was trying to be cute and funny, but he, to me what I didn't like about what he says, he was portraying people who like vinyl records or like to listen to them as this elite group of wine-sipping, country club-going, wealthy, um, with the, you know, an amazing stereo system, that, that kind of thing. And that the kids that are buying them just want something to put on their wall and they're not even bothering to listen to the, the record itself. Some of that's true on both sides. But he was also saying it's two years before you can get it. I haven't run across any orders that I've worked on that have taken two years. Um, I would guess more, more of a realistic thing. With trepidation, I would say eight months, which is still, to me, too long. But 
Um, I just did three three weeks ago. I got one of these calls, you know, from a major label guy who I'd never worked with before. Got your name from so and so. This is a Michael Bublé record. We've got it. Can you fit it in in the next two days? We'll pay rush order whatever you need. Just can you just do it? And so I did. And uh, I got test pressings back in three weeks. So if you're Michael Bublé on Warner Brothers Records, you, it can you know people are buying their way in, and that, that's a problem. Um, and it's a problem I don't really like because I feel like. Well, it's just absolutely true that the, the independent uh, bands and independent labels and DJs and punk rockers, they kept the format alive when it was on life support and barely going. They're the very ones that are getting edged out now. So I don't think that guy's being overdramatic. He's just saying, don't, and I would, I would say, do not anybody plan your record release party till you have at least till you have the test pressing approved and I approved my test pressing six weeks ago okay and that's why I emailed him in the first place okay um, well yeah it's it's just bad you know and people you know like I was mentioning this this new plant there's a new plant in Poland who I shipped something off to and they didn't even know that they got it and I've talked to have you tried this Polish plant yet and they're like oh my god they're awful they don't communicate and it's gonna sit around and so there's it the answer to me is is that you just can't be too organized you know you've got to plan for this huge delay but I see it happen all the time when the test pressings come in people get them and then I get a call like uh, I don't have a turntable, dude. Um, you know, do you know where I could go listen to my my test racing? And and they they usually allow you know two weeks for somebody to approve their test pressings. But that's something that can be done the day you get them or disapprove. You know, if you don't like it or something's wrong with it. Um, another thing I think is that's very frustrating to me is that I'm seeing more and more. It's like I just got one back and the client. Um, they were they were like it sounds great but it's really noisy the the surface noise is unacceptable um, and then I'll get a call like we got to recut it I'm like okay um, if you recut it this week they can promise to replate it two days after they got it well, why did it sit around for two months before they, the reason it's noisy is because it sat around for two months before they plated it. So if they can do it on a recut when everybody's freaking out, why can't that just be a schedule? And I've even started talking to people. I think there's, um, there's a, a model for a business out there for someone to just schedule, schedule these things and make, make, have an end with the plants. I mean, I know all the people at the plants and the plating facilities. I talk to them every day. But so I'm, you know, I can get things done when I really need to, or if there's a problem, um, we'd have a good working relationship. But so many people are just willy nilly about it, and they all they know to do is just get pissed when they don't have their <laughs> record in time, you know, and that's not the answer. So <clears throat> um, I think with more organization, more plants there's more plants coming online all the time plating is really the bottleneck you know getting once you get it electroplated and it's turned into metal parts then it's not 
in jeopardy of being ruined anymore by it can sit around for six months if you want you know but when it's a lacquer it can't because it deteriorates and so um i don't understand why and some are better than others now other plating companies are starting to do we'll do a rush order for you we'll promise that your record will be plated in three days once we receive the lacquers for twice the cost so just double it up and I have people in my ear all the time, you should just double your prices for rush orders, man. And I don't want to do that. Um, I mean, I'm not allergic to money or anything, but it's, uh, it just, it just kind of gross to me, you know? Um, I want to get a, I want to get a good quality record to my clients. That's what's the most important. So there's different ways to go about doing it, but it's, it's pretty frustrating right now. Um, I don't see it immediately getting better. I was about to say, it's hard for me to wrap my head around the record labels and the manufacturers and everybody being organized to communicate and organize a system to where this would be alleviated. Well, I think there's also, in the major labels, there's a lot of foot dragging going along too because they hate it because they have to work. <laughs> it's way more work to put out a vinyl record but to stay on top of things than to, yeah, to put it in the digital room and money comes back you know so the convenience factor of it it's a pain in the ass to get it right you know and then there's also the factor of records are starting if you're if you don't care you know if you don't follow it every step of the way well okay there's this really loud pop on the second song on side b that you know i'm I'm listening, I'm enjoying it, I'm floating down the stream in my head, and then BAM, this pop comes. Well, this time last year I would have asked for a recut. But I can't wait another eight months to go through all this again, so that's, we'll just leave, leave yeah, the pop. That's what I was going to ask. I mean, I mean, do you find that artists in general are just kind of having to let things slide that yes. they never would have let slide before? Yes. You know, And that, that bums me out too, because that means the overall quality is going down. Um, I don't think it's to the point yet where it's going to make people say, well, screw it, I'm going back to CDs necessarily. Some might, but um, it seems to me like if you're into the vinyl world and you want to release your music into vinyl, it's not just a cute thing to do anymore, really. I don't think that's what's gumming up the works, um, or hobbyist, if you will. You know, People who, who release records on vinyl, they usually care a little bit more about the quality than than, than, than not. Um, so it's a complex problem that continues to grow, you know, and right now, okay, Christmas is coming, so all the plants shut down the last two weeks of the year. That's the only time they ever shut down for maintenance and what have you. So it's December 1st, so I'm already to the point of telling clients, can you get this in before the end of the year? Yeah, I can. But then you want it to sit at a plating facility over Christmas for another month before you even have a shot at getting it plated? I wouldn't, you know. But is there a place you can buy your way in line so right after Christmas you can do it? That's not really, you're not really able to do that yet. So um, I I don't know. It's, uh, it's being worked on, but I don't think, I think everybody's so busy working and trying to keep up that the problem itself is not being addressed in a very effective way. Yeah, I mean, just doing the math on those figures. I mean, That's amazing, that 400 million? 400 million current standing orders and 140 million capacity. 
I mean, that's three years. <clears throat> yeah, and see, that seems like where some person with bags of money would show up and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the biggest plant in the world with the highest quality, you know, and yeah, man. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, at some point, uh, it, I've been following this trend about, you know, the resurgence in vinyl because I'm, I'm a record fan, but uh, I remember at the outset, it was, they said one of the choke points was that uh, no one was manufacturing uh, record pressing equipment anymore, but if, is that still an issue? Is that they're okay. making new presses now, and they're fantastic. They, uh, yeah, There's so two major companies that are making new record presses. Yeah, so it really just should be a matter of an entrepreneur with the money showing up to to kick out the jams and, and increase capacity. Yeah, Eric. And uh, across from Sam Phillips, wasn't originally there a plating facility? Down the street, there's a thing that says Memphis Plating. I've always looked at that building and go, God, it'd be nice to be able to cut a locker and walk it down the street and turn it in. That would be amazing. And I, thought, I thought you said something about it was about the, the chemicals they use. And yeah, so it's a, environmentally, it's not, plating, plating's not really cool right now. It seems, again, this is something we should work on. But, um, yeah, it's hard to, it's a messy job. It's full of chemicals. It's not the safest thing in the world to work around. So... Um, that's another issue too. Is there a is there a better way with different safer chemicals or a process that can that can happen that's that's more safe or that more people could get into? And it's it is it is a uh, you know a, a dark science. It's I, I I would compare it to like being able to make really good wine. If you're a winemaker. You know, some people are way better at it than others. It's not because they have a magic formula or their vats are perfect. It's because of the love and care they put into making the wine. Um, and somebody could be next door to them doing the same thing, the same ingredients, and the, it would not be the same. Um, that's a lot of the way vinyl is to me. Um, it's it's not, you know, the machines are rare. There's no new lathes being made, so there's only so many people cutting the records. The lacquers are a problem. There's 1,200 that come into the to United States every month. That's it. And there won't be any more for any foreseeable future. So all of our lacquers come from Japan. How many of those do you get? I'm promised 75 and I a lot of times they'll slide me an extra box if there is one. You know, they, they would call and go, yeah, I think we got an extra box. Do you want it? And I'm like, don't don't even ask mm -hmm. anymore. Send it. And I'll send me a bill. And I've been told I'd get the second most in the country. Wow. So you know, um, I try to keep. I try to. You can't. You know, I can't just go in and buy a thousand either because they get hard and then they become unusable. So it's got. It's a thing that has to keep going. I can only buy so many and use them and keep the line moving um, or you know they're they're so expensive it's thousand it's eleven hundred bucks for twenty five of them you know so I'm spending sixty grand a year on lacquers and if when I was starting out that they told me that was the requirement to get in you're gonna only you're just gonna have to come up with sixty grand a year for for your materials I don't think I would have started <laughs> you know I, I couldn't have I don't I don't have that you know so it's kind of like once you get rolling and you know you find a you just find a way yeah to cash flow it what is the difference between the lathe that you use and I know a lot of you've probably seen a lot of people advertising small batch lathe cut vinyl mm -hmm. 
What kind of lathes are they using and how are they different from what you use? There's a big difference. Number one, um, those lathe cut records, they don't usually reproduce over 5K, which is, you know, that's, that's not a lot of high end, you know, so uh, they certainly sound different. They're also cut into a, a plastic disc so with a diamond style, so um, when they're cut, they're done, you know, so you're going to make 50 of them for somebody. And most of the time, the guys who own those lathes, I think you can get a machine for 10 grand or something like that, but they're not meant to be mass manufactured. It's more of a, I want 50 records for my birthday party to give to everybody. And for that, they're fun. There's also a thing coming out called, have any of you heard of Phonocut? So it's a new company. It was demonstrated to me. Uh, at the last making vinyl concert, the making vinyl conference that I went to, uh, in this guy's hotel room, and uh, he he literally had a Dyson vacuum cleaner sucking up the chip that comes off when you actually cut it. But it's like I would call it the Easy Bake Oven of of lathes, <laughs> but it was kind of fun. They literally took their phone, downloaded a a Prince Spotify track and cut it in front of us with this literally holding the, the tube of a, of a Dyson vacuum cleaner on the top and then played it back for us and it didn't sound great but it didn't sound as bad as you might think you know, so that's coming around the corner those machines will be like 1200 bucks wow and are those what are those meant for just like <clears throat> punk rock dudes like me to put their little 20 records out or is it meant for people like home tapers yeah, or something? Yeah, probably akin to, uh, you know, a home, well, home cassettes actually sound pretty good, you know, um, if you make them yourself. But that that's the kind of thing for home home taping or to a party favor or what have you, you know, yeah. it's, it's something or a novelty or uh, a keepsake, something like that. They're not meant to compete with what we're, what we're doing. So, when you say what's the difference between those machines, the price difference is huge. Um, you know, lathes like mine are probably going for, if you could find one, would be 140, 150 grand right now. And the ones that you can buy in Germany, those little ones the, that you do the single cuts, those are like five grand, I think. And um, probably more when you buy more bells and whistles. But the guys I know that have those, they basically hire interns to like make 50 of these and pay a minimum, minimum wage. So they're not even really doing it. It's just a sideline thing. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we just had this? But it's not meant to compare to a lathe cut. If you Google it, there's a lot of people doing those right now, especially in Europe. There's a lot of folks. And sometimes a lathe cut can mean if they have a Presto lathe or one of the older portable lathes. Um, any of you heard of the, what did they call it, the vinyl project, where they would go to different venues and make and cut the, I know Star and Micey did it here. I went to this church and watched them do it, and they're like sitting there with a, a paintbrush and brushing off the chip as they're doing it, and they make one, and then they're, I don't know if they're using them for archives or if they're going to make a bigger project, but those those old things you can find, if and there's people that work on them, so... I think you could probably find one of those for somewhere between five to ten grand and get it going if you wanted to. Um, but that's like what Sam Phillips used at, at Phillips Recordings. So you know what those old Sun records sound like. They weren't, they were super cool, but they weren't meant to sound high fidelity at all. You, know? you mentioned cassettes a second ago. What do you think about the resurgence of cassettes? Um, 
the same as I did when I had them in my in my car in high school. <clears throat> if you made them yourself, you know, if you made them yourself and knew how to even had an alignable cassette deck where you could make them, they sound great. But every store-bought cassette I ever bought sounded like crap to me. So it's a matter of how they're manufactured. They 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 tend to mass manufacture cassettes in those in a machine called a bin loop machine, where it's just this giant reel of tape and it just um, just constantly runs and then it cuts it off and it puts it in the you know it's a, it's an automated process once you get the master tape and to be safe with it you know they're typically not cut very loud so there's a lot of tape hiss and just different things that make it not sound good but you know when you make your own mixtape some of those things sound really really cool still you know I have some shoebox full of those I think you know um, as far as the research resurgence I haven't really um, I, I haven't got my cassette deck working again so you know <laughs> you don't have anyone approaching you about mastering for cassette a few really yeah a few but I just what would you do differently I'd have to learn more about it to be honest you know um, but they're they're becoming more popular again but also in that article we were talking about you know he was making some noise about it's going to go back he's afraid it's going to go back to cd because that's all that's going to be available yeah you can make those much faster um what you what you put out is what you get you know i remember when larry was teaching me to cut vinyl at, at arden you know he loved the cd because of all the headaches that he would have to go through with vinyl and when you made a cd master and it was approved by who the label and the band you were done you got paid you know barring some weird manufacturing defect but that wouldn't be on you um so there's a lot less stress as far as doing it you know and i feel like there's a number of people in in the vinyl manufacturing world what's starting to happen is and it it bums me out that they're sending out test pressings and they're not checking them before they do they're just they're hoping they're okay what's that all about you know i don't know why people would send a note with that that one that was noisy i was talking about why would i don't even know why anyone would send that out to the client if someone was there to actually listen and quality control that they would have said oh whoa, 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 this is noisy this is not going to fly but they're sending them out and hoping that either they they don't listen or i don't know what they're hoping for but it's just taking more time and being a problem I know at Memphis Record Pressing, they, they uh, a friend of mine used to be one of their quality control person. He all he would do all day was listen to test pressings and make sure they weren't jacked up. Yeah, and I've been to a plant in Cleveland at uh, Gotta Groove where I remember the first time I went into their quality control room. They've got like ten people in there with headphones on, but they're they're listening to all these thirty three and the third records at forty five RPMs just for the speed of it, just checking to make sure it doesn't skip oh, and stuff no. like that. So could you imagine that that was your job listening to <laughs> to Mickey Mouse sing all day long? <laughs> Anybody else have any questions out here for a second? Yeah. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Um regarding uh skating and the Vince Garaldi, uh folding it down to um, mono, which sounds amazing. But why why choose to do that instead of maybe working with the phase issues in the stereo? Uh, just a just a aesthetic taste choice, or 
Yeah, well, they're just, that's a good question. There's two different things. I mean, one of the things you do when you have something that's out of phase or um, you start getting those hourglass grooves like I was talking about, um, there's a, a tool called an elliptical EQ. You're probably aware of that. And what that basically does is that takes low end, you, you would set up the frequency of what how, how low end, where you want to set up the bar, so say 50 cycles on down, it will pull all of those from the outer edges of the stereo field and pull them toward the middle, mono. And that's where the main problems lie. So sometimes you can rein it in like that. But when you do that, it drastically changes, especially on things like that have hard pan drums and bass and stuff, which are a headache to do. But it also, um, you know, it can be, it just, it's really, it's really hard to, to get it to, feel the same way. So sometimes either by just collapsing the whole mix down to mono, if they were engineered properly, that tends to work better for me. Um, if the shot sides are short enough, I'll, uh, I won't elliptical EQ things a lot of times, see what I can get away with. And um, I've never had one come back in like, my needle's flying out of the groove, this isn't, you need to recut it because it won't play right on my stereo, unless it's a crow's leap, but you know. I disregard those, really. I mean, um, I heard Bernie Grunman speak one time, and he said, when you listen to a record on a Crosley player, you're basically recutting the record. <laughs> <laughs> this is because they're so heavy, and they just dig in, and you know, it's not going to skip on it. We used to put quarters on our, you know, on our tone arms when, when I was yeah. a kid, just to wait. Same theory, just weight it down so it doesn't skip. Right. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I was just wondering if that was just a, just a. An aesthetic choice or a technical? Choice. A little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything's so different, you know. It's and and the way they were mixed and and treated, it's it's hard to give. Like, well, here's what you do every time when you get when this one's when this pitch comes. Here's how you hit it. You know, yeah. um, some things work on some that surprise you, and others just don't. You know. I remember Ray LaMontagne's first record. Uh, when I first heard that, I heard it on CD. I, I loved it, and uh, I probably listened to that thing five or six times before I even realized that the drums and the bass were panned hard off each other because I wasn't listening in headphones and I just had it on in the room and I wasn't... I try not to listen with engineer ears when I'm trying to listen for enjoyment, you know? Mm -hmm. So try to flip that button off yeah. as hard as it may be. I, I love it when stuff can be... I, I, I was able to do a mix like that on a record last year I was I was really happy that I was able to pull it off because sometimes it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work it sometimes doesn't and work. sometimes it does. It's all the other things that are mixed with it. Yeah. Hello again. Before we get back to Jeff Powell, I'd like to mention that I have a new digital single out for the holidays called Christmas Time Again. The again is in parenthesis which you can find on Spotify, Apple Music, etc., and also on Bandcamp as a part of the compilation Hot Nog released by Small Batch Records. You can find Small Batch Records at smallbatchrecords.bandcamp.com. Once again, please check out my new single Christmas Time Again wherever you stream or download music. Now let's get back to the Memphis Listening Lab. Yeah, yeah, it is hard to compare. Did could you get a sense of what the difference between DMM was and the analog a little bit from the, those two? Just you know, it's it's just kind of two different things. Um, you know, and, and people have talked to me about uh, even why don't you convert your lathe over to a metal 
to make it a direct metal machine. Um, and I, I said no, but in case the lacquer situation turns to where all of a sudden we can't get lacquers from Japan anymore, you know, I, I literally could be out of business overnight. And so, but I'm not going to live so afraid of that, you know, that I quit what I'm doing on, you know, on my machine. Um, if I had a second machine, maybe I would think about doing that, but um, it's not so much for a quality difference, it's just to keep to keep going, but, you know, if it turns into there's six of these machines in the world or something like that. Um. If, you had, if you had the same record cut to your lacquer and the DMM, would it be very apparent once you A-B them? It's hard to say, man. Um, depends on how good of a job they do. Yeah, it just depends on. So what I what I'm saying is like the the operator there is more concerned about how many can they get out the door, how many yeah. jobs can they process. So that's more where the problem lies to me. And also some of these conglomerates that you guys may have seen or may have used, even um, like A to Z Media, Pirates Press, mm. all those guys are using the the uh, GZ. DMM method that's what they use and so they kind of handle all the business if you just don't want to fool with it and you're like here's my files send me back a record when it's done that's the way to go then you know if you don't want to mess with it but they, they kinda, even have a package where for slightly less money they won't even send you test pressings they'll just send you the records <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah so and you know frankly test pressings are a little strange in and of themselves too because some of the smaller companies I like to use are cool because they'll use the same machine to do your test pressing as what they're going to manufacture your manufactured record. So many of them have like a dedicated machine that they they cut test they have a cutter. I mean, a, they have a pressing operator who who just makes test pressings all day long. And so, when you approve that, it's actually being made on another machine, so it's not a completely accurate representation. Because you know, machine op press operators are just like cutters and everything else. There's a a personality and how they do what their job and how much they care and what goes into it, you know? You're making me feel like I should have paid you the extra couple hundred bucks, man. No. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anybody? Mark? Why does Lacquer just come from Japan? What's the deal with that? It's the only company making them. <clears throat> the other company that made them burned down, right? Yeah. There was one in Banning, California, which was the only other one in the world. And uh, they made two different brands, Apollo and Transco. Uh, they were mostly the same, but slightly different. They also made all the cutting styly that we use, and that all burned up too. So now all my styly come from the UK. My lacquers come from Japan. There is a U.S. distributor that I deal directly with, so they get the they get the 1200 in and then dole them out to to everybody and then I know a few people who there's a certain number that go to Europe the lockers go to Europe and they buy them through somebody over there but it's it's like making a drug deal you gotta send money order to the guy in England and he calls the guy in Germany you know not that I've ever made an international drug deal I'm willing to learn there's nothing to stop some other company from starting to create lockers there's just not enough of yeah <clears throat> well um, again, it's an environmentally kind of disastrous thing to do. There's a company right now that used to make them in France that was supposedly ready to go before the pandemic called Pyrel, P-Y-R-E-L, and um, 
they were supposedly ready to go to market and then the pandemic hit and they just bailed. So maybe that's coming around the corner when things still die down, but the, the pandemic has affected this business as much as it has anything else. They have troubles keeping workers and people get sick and they have to shut down their whole plant and you know, hopefully that's all getting better. Mm -hmm. But you know, is knows. Is there a finite end to the natural materials that are used to make lacquers? It's it's a it's a cellulose, cellulose nitrate, which is the same thing basically as fingernail polish. Wow! So it's not even that hard to do. I guess the hardest thing to do is to make a formula that's quiet enough and that they can do an even coating enough because it's just coated onto a, an aluminum disc. So those aren't rare either. Um, when it first burned down, I heard Jack White put in a million dollars to get another plant going in the U.S. and somebody said there was one in can You know, there's all these rumors floating around, but nobody's really stepped up to do it. Um, I'm not really sure why. Maybe there aren't, you know, there's only so many cutters, so, and they, we can only go so fast, so maybe we've figured out this is how many. I mean, it'd be nice. It would. I'd sleep better at night if I knew I could get, and, and it would make the price go down, too. And, you know they're they're over 50 bucks a piece now so I'm one one today I you know I just in the first song I'm looking at it and there's a dark line that means it's an overcut it's where the two grooves have just gone together stop run there goes 50 bucks you know it used to stress me out but now you just gotta go on and, you know sometimes you can use if you catch it early enough you can make a seven inch out of them to the middle will still be fine so we save them and use them the best we can. But yeah, when there's a when there's a defect in your lacquer or whatever, it's tough. You eat it. You don't get your money back or credit. Apollo Transco used to do that, so you'd wait till you had enough to get another box of 25, and they would send them to you. But not anymore. No, Japanese are like, we don't have to do that, so we won't. You know, you're gonna need them anyway. You wanna be a jerk about it? How zero sound? You know. Anybody? Do you want to play some more music? Sure. Let's see what we got in the bag. Do you cut for flexi disc much? Or Never ever? have. I I did some uh, experiment with it when I was doing a lot of cutting for furnace manufacturing. They were messing with it for a minute, but uh, it was really hard to do, and we weren't really getting anywhere with it. So. Uh, so this record. Let's play the third, third song on that side. So I'll pass this around real quick, but uh, the, this is from the band Primal Scream. <clears throat> so this was the first record that I actually sat in the engineer chair for um, in my engineering career for a major label. Um, Primal Scream came over and had done an EP at Arden and I was the assistant engineer on that and then this fellow here, Tom Dowd, who some of you may or may not have heard of, he's one of the most famous producers in the world and he was really kind to me and he uh, he had brought over a Leonard Skinner record and an Allman Brothers record that I was the assistant on and um, toward the end of the Allman Brothers record, to make a long story short, uh, 
the engineer ended up getting punched in the face and and quit and so he had me finish out the engineering on that and he gave me my my first break to, to actually do this so we made this record uh the primals wanted to come over and they wanted to make like a stonesy drunk memphis girls and horns it's the memphis horns playing on this um kind of a record and they had just come off their biggest record, which was Scream of Delica, which had sold like 10 million copies in, in uh, worldwide. And they had won the Mercury Awards, which would be the equivalent of winning the Grammy for Record of the Year here. They, they were on fire. And um, I remember after we mixed it, and they came back over from London and came in to listen to it. They sat down, we played them the whole thing. And every one of them just got up and walked out of the room after they heard it and didn't say a word. And I was I was mortified. It's like wow, my first big shot, I blew it. They hate it. And what had ended up happening is they we'd made this record and they started freaking out like, oh, what what have we done? Our fans are going to go, what the hell is this? We you just made Screamadelica, which is a club dance kind of a record, you know, with more electronica and those kind of elements in it. This has none of that in it. So. They ended up calling me a couple weeks later and asked if, if they flew me to England if I would remix the record without Tom Dowd watching over my shoulder. And I'm like, without Tom, he's the, I'm not gonna do that behind his back, you know? This is my first record I did. He's, he invented multi-track recording. Um, so I said, certainly not without asking. So I called Tom and told him that they wanted me to come remix a few of the songs over there. And he's like, go ahead. That guy can't sing worth a damn anyway, you know, and just uh, have a great time. And it was my first time to go to England. So we went over there, we touched up a few, and I ended up mixing all the ballads that came out on the on the real record. And then they sent the things off to George DeCoulias, George Clinton, the Parliament, you know, all these different remixer guys and tried to get it back into their world a little bit. And they kind of ruined their record. Um, but it came out, I mean, it still sold a million copies, but it wasn't a 10 million seller like their previous one had been, so it was a bit of a disappointment. So fast forward to 20 years, and I got a phone call at my house, and it was the guitar player in this band, and he said, uh, this is actually the cover of the cassette of the mixes that we originally did. And he had found this cassette and got it transferred over to a CD and had listened to it and called me and said, we ruined our record. That original thing you did is beautiful and we should have put that out. I'm going to call Sony and see if they'll put out the original record. So that's what happened. And um, they loved it and they came over, the BBC came over, did a documentary about this lost record we found. I'll pass this around so you can look. But anyway, this is a track called uh, Call On Me. And so again, you can hear the Memphis horns and my wife Susan Marshall and Jackie Johnson were the background singers on it and that was one of their first uh, major label records that they'd worked with Tom Dado and Tom started using them as his background girls for lots of records after that. So anyway, I thought it might be fun to check it out. It was really weird hearing it after all those years because I, you know, I had put that aside as just like, well, that's, that is what it is, you know, and you move on to the next thing. But uh, yeah, I could probably write a book about my story, my time with Primal Scream. Um, they were they were pretty wild. And that was tracked in Studio A. Studio A. It was tracked and mixed in A at Arden. Yeah. So when the record came back out, how did it do? 
so they were yeah they did great with it um the the guy we called throb who was the guitar player he's he's no longer with us he passed away and uh um so they didn't like do a special tour around it but again they had a bbc special on it over there and it did it did real well um they were all really happy with it and everybody's like why did you guys not put this out in the first place they had they had one minor hit called uh get your rocks off uh that did pretty well internationally um i remember i used to hear that on 96x back in the day was that off this was that yeah. three sessions? yeah that was their single off of it at least in the in the united states so, wow and they continue they're still a band and they still tour and you know they do they do well worldwide they just never really caught on here that great Anybody else here have a question? We've gone through all my prepared content. Do you want to just play something else and call sure. it? Or what? Who we got? I, uh, you need some help uh, cleaning up any weed with. <laughs> you know. That was the greatest thing about double album covers, man. You know. <laughs> Keep your weed in there. Yeah. Multi purpose. So, so is your calendar packed for the next three years, four years, two years? Certainly into next year. Um, I got one last night that I have to tell about because I'm really excited about it. I got a. a and be cutting it's a six-sided lp for buck owens all his singles from 1959 through 74 so i'm really oh, wow. oh, wow. excited cool. to do that yeah. half of it's half of it's mono mm -hmm. is that through um, is that an omnivore thing yeah yeah so i'm, I'm psyched about that cool. it's gonna be fun yeah. i say that now i haven't heard the tracks who knows what kind of condition it's in but they have a guy, it's, it's Omnibore Records, and they have a guy that they keep on staff that basically does all the mastering and pre-mastering for me, and he's fantastic, so. Do you have a favorite vinyl cut, Jeff? Like, the way it came out? Um, I was pretty thrilled to do the Big Star Records, you know, all of those. It was, <clears throat> it was, uh fun and terrifying at the same time just because of what I had to go through to get it to work. They Basically when I got the master tapes there were no calibration tones on the tapes or there was like one 1k tone for like 20 seconds and so for those of you who don't know what that is normally they, they you have different frequencies and tones that you listen to to align your tape machine. <clears throat> So wherever, theoretically, wherever you played that tape anywhere in the world, you could tweak the tape machine and it would sound like it was when it was recorded. And so um, I'm not sure why the, you know, I know for sure John Fry didn't just forget to put the tones on there, so I'm not really sure why or what, where these masters came from or what, but it was quite a story because I had to basically align the tape machine by ear listening to the old original records and original pressings and even some of the reissues and get it in the ballpark and then I dumped the tapes into my digital world and did stuff to where I could hear it back and compare it easily to the original pressings and I didn't want to you know paint a mustache on the Mona Lisa or anything or completely redo it I wanted it to sound like the original as much as possible and I got it close in digital world 
then I looked at what I did. I just do stuff. I looked at what I did in digital world and then reproduced that in my analog rack and then played that against the original pressings to where I felt good about cutting. Then I cut the cut the lacquer. So, you know, big star fans are, are very, are a critical lot, you know. So I was ready for some Rotten Tomatoes, but I, it got really, really good reviews. Um, I actually brought that tonight too, if anyone wants to hear anything off. Yeah. The, the Chris Bell record that you did especially, uh, I've heard from numerous people that the previous pressing of that did not sound very good and that yours is the best sounding. Oh, well good. I, uh, do you know who Chris Stamey is? Yes. Um, from the DBs. I was talking to him, I'd cut records for him sometimes, and <laughs> when I told him I was doing Chris Bell's record, he's like, did you speed it up? And I said, no. I. I cut it from the, it came in digitally, so I, I cut it from the masters that were sent to me. He goes, when he did it originally, man, you should have checked that. He goes, when he did it originally, I made the suggestion to him to, he should speed, very speed the tape up just a little bit. So it's not, you know, he let me know before he ever heard it, it's like, it's not going to be right. You know? <laughs> but nobody's, nobody seems to have picked up on it, so now you know. <laughs> Oh, one thing we, we mentioned talking about earlier was uh, the Grammy thing. You've worked on a lot of projects that were nominated for Grammys this year. Yeah, the, the Grammy nominations came out last week on Tuesday, and uh, me and Lucas Peterson, who work with me, we have, uh, and there's seven different, seven different projects that I worked on this last year have been nominated this year for Grammys, so we're excited mm -hmm. about that. Awesome, yeah. Off the top of your head? Um, okay, let's see if I can do this. Best Folk Album, I did the Sarah Jarose record. Uh, Best Americana, I did the Jackson Brown record. Um, Best Regional Roots, I did a record from a band called Chawa on Single Lock. Um, Best Contemporary Blues for Joe Bonamassa. Best Traditional Blues for Cedric Burnside his new record which Boo Mitchell did here in Memphis and if any of those of all of those I would say that probably has the best chance of winning a statue probably the Burnside and yeah it's really good if you haven't heard it um, what are the other two Sturgill Simpson oh yes uh, best country album Sturgill Simpson the ballad of dude and Juanita that one came in like a late night phone call can you please stop what you're doing and do this tomorrow. I said, who is it? <laughs> Sturgill Simpson, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was cool. We're, we're happy about that. You say, Even if those records win, though, you still won't be able to say that you're... No, I'm not a Grammy. Even if they win, I won't be able to say I'm a Grammy winner. You can say that you worked on a Grammy-winning record. So... That happened three times. Three three things I did last year won, including best record of the year um, for Billie Eilish's single. Yeah, we talked about that last time. Yeah. The one that was exclusive to Urban Outfitters. Mm-hmm. What? Right. Oh, I didn't know. Maybe I could get a free t-shirt. No. <laughs> I, I cut the record of the year and all I got was this lousy Urban Outfitters t-shirt. <laughs> Do you want to play a big star song and call sure. it? Sure. Yeah. 
Oh, you had a question. I was going to ask earlier, did you bring the replacements of them that you remastered? He did. Yeah, I did. Because you were talking about that last time, but we didn't get a chance to play anything off it. Play it. Pleased to meet me. Do you have a cut you'd want to hear? Uh, anything you... What's your favorite off of it? I haven't even... Um, I love the Alex Chilton thing. This, that's an alternate version. Let's see. You pick one. Hmm. You can even open I mean, it if you want. Oh, fancy. Nice. I mean, just can't hardly wait until it's But I mean, can't hardly wait? Yeah. yeah. Let's do that. Thank you. Okay, and I'll pass this around. That is number four on side A, Jim. Jim, I was thinking too, it'd be awful cool if you learned to limbo underneath that word. <laughs> <laughs> I'll work that on that, man. Awesome. <laughs> so track four? Track four on side A. I see the Record Store Day sticker on there. Do you want to say anything about the sure. institution of Record Store Day? This is an alternate version, by the way. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, again, there's a lot of people belly aching about it and stuff. I, I've come to the conclusion it was a really good thing in the beginning because it made a lot of people aware of going to their hometown local record stores and supporting local businesses and all that. But I feel like it's kind of outgrown its purpose and it's just adding a lot of unnecessary pressure. I mean, people freak out when they don't make the record store day date. You know, and if you're waiting eight months, you've, you've got a plan for next year's now if you're going to do that. So um, it causes pressure on probably less on me because my turnaround isn't, my turnaround's probably two weeks, you know. Um, but the plating and the pressing plants are just, you know, they, they've grown to hate it. <laughs> so I don't know if it'll stick around or go away. What do you guys think about Record Store Day? Do you still go out and enjoy getting all those special records on on that special day? Um, I, I also think there's some complaining that's been going on that some some record store owners will set a few back for their buddies or for themselves and you know you can resell those things three hours later after you buy them for four times what you paid for them or more. You know, so that that game is going on a little too. And I've heard of people <clears throat> complaining about it just basically artificially driving up the cost of records with this like kind of manufactured yeah, air of like yeah. you know exclusivity and rarity when it's you know really in six months they're just going to put these records out normally. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's the it's the thing about being the first. What do you guys think? What do you guys think of that? Um, have you had any experiences with Record Store Day, Pat? That uh, not, nothing I would call just, you know, revelatory, you know, um, but I mean, we have done some, I mean, it has been a good, um, prompt to do releases, you know, like to have an excuse to dig into something that's, you know, an older work and just kind of gives you an excuse to, to remaster and, and do vinyl. And so for that, I applaud it. I mean, it, it it definitely has encouraged the, uh, the visibility and the participation in vinyl, you know. Um, but um, 
But most of, uh, I, I get the feeling that most of my record store owner friends are kind of, you know, are not super psyched about it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> some are, some are, you know. It's, yeah. <clears throat> but I don't, I don't understand all the mechanics of, of I, try, I try to stay out of that. that right, so you can still it. enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, so I can still enjoy my records. Yeah. As someone who's worked through many a record store day at a record store, I can say that it's not, I mean, the, the, the things that you guys would be putting out, you know, and your crowd are fine, but it's the people who are obsessed with getting the glow-in-the-dark Ghostbusters-shaped yeah. stuff, and they're freaking out about it and fighting over it in the store. It's, I mean, when that Big Star thing came out, the Big Star 3 came out for Record Store Day, we had people literally grabbing the records and pulling on either sides of them and getting into... We had to tell people to go outside. Wow. You know? But going all Walmart on you. <laughs> but I've worked a few in Chicago, so I've seen the people line up for, for your stuff. For some, for, for some Jeff, for you know uh, about a recording that was done at WIYX, a big, uh, part of Big Star, Alex and Jody? Yeah, I cut that. It's out. Yeah, uh, I don't uh, think there's anything that's not out. Is it on uh, Big Star? Uh, <laughs> Spotify or YouTube or something? Somehow that they've released a record on Alex Chilton where the power went out, but then they somehow recorded it still, and they released that on a record. Oh, right? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Like, how do you? Like how did that even happen if the power was out? A battery-operated cassette. That ought to sound wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some, sometimes there's reasons why things are outtakes. Right. <laughs> you know the story about the vocals where he did it, you can hear him when he coughs in there, but they cut this right before I started at Arden. I'm so old, man. But uh, they, uh, the, the story they were telling, well, number one, there's some stains on the wall. In they cut it at Studio B at Arden, and there's stains on the wall. And Jim Dickinson, used, the story was is they were having puking contest to see who could puke the highest on the wall. And Jim's like, that is not true. They were puking into their hands and throwing it up onto the wall. You can still see some of those stains. But uh, he said Paul Westerberg used to, Dickinson had, there's, if you've been to Arden, there's a little sound lock between the studio and the back hallway. It's just a concrete square room that it, it sounds, We've tried to record things in there for years. Nothing sounds good in there. It's just, you know, just a, it's a sound lock. They put a mattress in there, evidently, and Westerberg would strip down to his underwear and cover himself in Vicks. Dickinson somehow convinced him that was what you do. He's like, this is our secret weapon, and he got Westerberg to do that. And so he'd just be in there just hacking and coughing and all this stuff coughing up you know and just spitting on the this horrible mattress that was in there and that was the that was the vocal sound that you hear there oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's rock and roll man that's rock and roll yeah <laughs> so yeah again thanks thanks everybody for coming out and supporting the memphis listening lab and hope you learned something and had fun yeah. and go vinyl go yeah. That's the show. Thank you to Jeff Powell. Thank you to Jim Cole and the Memphis Listening Lab. Thank you to engineer Eric Wilson for helping us record this. Thank you to Arthur with two H's for the opening theme. Thank you to Joey Pegram for the closing theme. 
Thank you for listening. As I mentioned earlier, this is the last interview podcast I'm doing this year, but I will be posting a couple of Spotify-exclusive music episodes, so stay tuned for those. And if you're not on Spotify, we'll see you in 2022. For music news and episode archives, visit backtothelight.net. And until next time, happy holidays and take care, y'all. of the Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.